The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. So now we will go to Revelation chapter 11. So we've been, since Revelation chapter 2 and 3, where we took one church at a time, since that time we've pretty much been going a chapter at a time, which is good because that's how Revelation is kind of laid out. Even though John didn't write in chapters and verses, whoever broke it down hundreds of years ago did so in a logical manner. And so we've been taking it about a chapter at a time, and we're going to do that this morning as well with Revelation chapter 11. Look at all 19 verses. Good thing to do in Revelation because it is a intentionally fast-paced moving book, uh, especially further along we move into the book, is further along we move in the prophecies of the coming tribulation, and God does escalate his judgment against unbelievers during that time. So uh, there is this pace of urgency in the message of Revelation, complemented by the fact that we're going to go about a chapter at a time moving through this book so that we can keep the continuity of what's happening in this amazing prophecy of the future. And before we look at Revelation chapter 11, 1 through 19, just by way of reminder, in the book of Daniel chapter 12, also in Daniel chapter 9, but in Daniel chapter 12 specifically, 500 years before Christ, Daniel in a prophetic vision was told by God that there would be a time of trouble or tribulation unprecedented in the history of the world that was yet future for Daniel and there would never be a time of devastation like it that the world would ever see. It even uh, eclipsed the flood, which was universal in terms of its impact on all the people that it was going to affect and leading into the culmination of world history. So Daniel made that prophecy 500 years before Christ was born. Daniel prophesied there would be a great tribulation. And he gave a lot of details about it, but not all the details. And then Jesus was born 500 years later, and during his ministry, at the end of his three-year ministry in Matthew 24 and 25, he took that opportunity to explain the details of this time period called the Great Tribulation. Daniel was the one that let us know it's a, a seven-year period. The New Testament takes that seven-year period and divides it in half and emphasizes the last three and a half years. And Jesus called that last three and a half year period of the Great Tribula or the Tribulation, he called it the Great Tribulation in Matthew 24. Uh, Jesus referred to the first three and a half years as uh, birth pangs, horrible things and signs leading up to the Great Tribulation. And pretty much Revelation chapter 4, through chapter 9 were the birth pangs, the first three-and-a-half-year period during this seven-year tribulation. And now we are about to embark on the last half of the seven-year period called the Great Tribulation. Uh, those were Jesus' words, the Great Tribulation, Matthew 24. Revelation 7.14 also refers to that time period as the Great Tribulation. So this is still yet future. So as we look at Revelation 11, depending upon your background and who's influenced you or who's taught you or maybe your study bible depends people have different perspectives but it is clear that revelation is still future it hasn't happened yet because revelation tells us that in revelation 119 revelation chapter 4 verse 1 hasn't happened yet even john's going to tell us in this chapter this is a prophetic vision of the future yet to come this is at the end of world history uh, this is not a recycling and looking back at what has happened in the past or what has happened in 2,000 years of church history or it's not ongoing and right now. We are not in the tribulation. Every time there's a cataclysmic event, and I, almost without exception, whether it has universal impact, whether it's a hurricane down in New Orleans or the last two Gulf Wars, 
I have received phone calls from various Christians that I know over the years saying, are we in the great tribulation? Are we, are we on the brink of it? Or are, you, are we in it right now? Or, and I can say with confidence, no. Uh, these events are horrible. Uh, God's wrath is being revealed on earth, says Romans 1.18. Uh, you will suffer as a Christian. That's a promise in this lifetime. Satan is alive and well on planet earth. But we are not in the great tribulation. That is clear from Scripture. It is yet future. It hasn't happened yet. Uh, these are There is tribulation in this life, but this is not the great tribulation. So we're looking to the future here, and I believe based on Revelation and Thessalonians that the church of Jesus Christ is going to preserve, be preserved from the, the time period when the great tribulation gets unveiled, when it gets poured out on earth. So I don't believe that the church is going to go through the great tribulation. But Christians must endure tribulation their entire life on earth as Christians because we're going against the tide. And tribulation and trial makes us more like Christ, doesn't it? That's the promise of Christ. It squeezes us into a mold that doesn't come naturally and actually that we resist and forms us into the image of Christ. That's what trials do, hardships, tribulation. It's painful, but for our good and for God's glory. But right now we're going to be catapulted in the future of how world history is going to end, and that's why it's exciting. We know how it ends. We know. It. Maybe you had a lousy week. Maybe you had a discouraging week, a lousy day yesterday. It was the pits. No doubt some of you did. Very discouraging, very down. Yeah, Jesus is risen, yip-de-doo. But, you know, when you're in the moment of a trial and you're overcome, you know, trials are real. God knows that. But... What's so encouraging about Revelation for a Christian is we look to the end. We have an eternal perspective and we can, even though I'm in a trial, I, I don't understand there's hardships now. I don't understand this hurdle that I'm confronted with and all the tribulation that comes with it. But God wants us to have an eternal perspective because we are victors and overcomers. And so there's some good news here in Revelation 11 for believers. It's supposed to be encouraging for us because we know how it ends. How does it end? It ends in victory for the believer and for Jesus. Jesus is the victory. It ends in good news. That is awesome. Reminded of that just this week. Uh, one of my sons had a basketball game and they were losing at halftime. And the team, I guess, didn't think they were supposed to be losing at halftime. So they were all in the huddle, down in the dumps, and nobody was smiling and weren't listening to the coach. And, oh, we might as well just quit now and go home. Then I had to go slap them all. What is wrong with you? Get a Christian perspective. We still have the fourth quarter. Jesus is coming again. <laughs> and then they ended up winning the game at the end of the game. Close game. Yay. Whoopee. So, I mean, that's really the Christian life. Maybe you're at, it's, it's halftime. You might be losing, but remember, it is only halftime. Or the first quarter, right? The fourth quarter is still coming. Jesus is the victor. We know how it ends. That's really one of the main points of Revelation. God gave this to his people to let them know how it's going to end with good news. So let's go ahead and look at some of this good news. It's coming for the history of the world. History is going somewhere. God is in charge. So I took Revelation 11, just broke it up into three points. And let's go ahead and look at that. I'm going to read 1 through 19. And by the way, Revelation 10 and 11 go together. They should not be separated by this chapter break. It's a continuation. John is now, he's given three and a half years of what it's going to be like at the beginning of the tribulation. And he's tired and it's heavy duty and it's worldwide and he needs a break. And God recommissions John to finish the story for the last three and a half years. And that's what chapter 10 is all about, where God recommissions John as, a, as an apostle. 
Okay, here's what's still yet to come. And he really recommissions him like in the style of an Old Testament prophet in every sense of the word. And so everything pretty much from chapter 11 on for the rest of the book, actually 11 through chapter 18 is what's going to happen in the next three and a half years. And John needed to be encouraged by God to finish the task, to persevere and to finish, get to that finish line. So it's a continuation of chapter 11. John's recommissioning to finish the last three and a half years of the prophetic call during the tribulation. And so he continues and says this in verse 1, And there was given to me a a measuring rod. This was after he was given a scroll to eat. Then he's given a measuring rod, maybe from that strong angel. Uh, a, A measuring rod like a staff, long old stick. And someone said, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. And leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations or the Gentiles... And they will tread or trample underfoot the holy city, Jerusalem, for 42 months, three and a half years. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1260 days, which is 42 months or three and a half years. And they will be clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone would desire to harm them in this manner, he must be killed. These two witnesses have the power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood. Superheroes! And to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony or witnessing, the beast, Antichrist, that comes out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And the dead bodies of the two witnesses will lie in the street of the great city, Jerusalem, which mystically, symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth are earth dwellers. Evil earth dwellers will rejoice over their death and make merry. And they will send gifts and presents to one another because these two prophets tormented those earth dwellers. And after the three and a half days, the breath from God came into the two witnesses and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were beholding them. And they heard a voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And the two witnesses went up into heaven into the cloud and their enemies watched. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there arose loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to Thee, O Lord God, the Almighty, who art and who wast, because Thou hast taken Thy great power and hast begun to reign. And the nations were enraged. And Thy wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to give the reward to Thy bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear Thy name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and great hailstones. 
or a great hailstorm. Wow, it's amazing. So this is the beginning of the three and a half year period at the end of the seven year tribulation. The great tribulation is being ushered in now in this prophetic vision. So John goes on. So let's go ahead and look at John's threefold vision of what was yet to come from his perspective 2000 years ago, starting with point number one, and that's verses one and two. And that is God's Jewish remnant is measured. Verses one and two and is measured. God's Jewish remnant. And there was given to John, the apostle. He just ate this scroll from God, taking the words of God, the prophecy of God. He's going to be obedient. He's going to assimilate it and make it part of his life. And he will fulfill his mission as a prophet of God, even though there is good news in it. It is laced with bad news, judgment and rebellion from people the world over. Sad reality. Sad reality. John knows that many, if not most of the world, will reject God's final warning to to people, to humanity. The encouraging news, though, that God wants to do right off the outset here after it turned bitter in his stomach, just the thought of all these people rejecting God's message, he encourages John really saying, even though the world, for the most part, is going to reject most of your message, John, there's somebody that's going to respond to your message, and it's going to be the Jewish nation. It is going to be the Jewish people. It is going to be the apple of the uh, God's eye based on the Old Testament. All these prophecies that God made and promises to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament beginning with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 when he called Abraham out and said, you're going to be my special people, the nation of Israel. And they were pretty much disobedient for 2,000 years. even fell out of favor for a time from God and were being chastened. And the nation of Israel collectively is actually being chastened right now by God. That's what Romans 9 through 12 or 9 through 11 says. This 2,000 year period where the church is thriving, which is Jew and Gentile alike in Christ as one body, the nation of Israel collectively is being chastened by God, to woo the nation of Israel back to himself. And God always succeeds in his plan. He's going to woo the nation of Israel back during the tribulation. And it's going to culminate at the end of the tribulation. And the entire nation of Israel collectively from all over the world is going to come together and they are going to embrace the one whom they have pierced. That's what the Old Testament says. And that's why Paul concludes with a crescendo and an exclamation point in Romans chapter 11, verse 27 26 where he says and all israel will be saved that's exciting god has a plan for israel that is his special people as is today the church is his special people but god's going to fulfill his plan for the israelites and the apostle john was a jew he was heartbroken at the rejection that the jewish people had done towards their messiah when he came and they crucified him and the majority of them have rejected Christ all throughout John's life from the time he was 30 till now he's 90. 60 years of rejection on the part of the Jews collectively. John is heartbroken. What about the Jews? What about your promises, God? And God encourages John here. There's, that day is coming. All Israel will be saved. And here is a guarantee from God's point of view to John the Apostle that's going to happen. That's what this is all about. All the, all the words used here have uh, Jewish overtones explicitly. So let's look at it. And there was given... Uh, John the prophet. He's in this Old Testament prophetic role where he has this amazing vision, this apocalyptic vision from God that is true. And in there, he's, he's given this measuring rod. He participates in the vision somehow. I can't explain it. He's having a prophetic vision and he's actually participating in it. And some, somebody gives him this huge rod. It's a measuring rod. It's like a bamboo stick. Could be anywhere from six feet to sometimes 20 feet long, like one of those pole vault poles. And these grew in the Jordan Valley. And they're hollow in the middle and rigid on the outside. And it's the most comparable thing would be like a long bamboo stick. 
And they would use that to measure things. And that's what he was given to measure. And if you looked at Ezekiel chapter 40 through 43, Ezekiel, the prophet, was given a measuring rod, long old thing, almost 20 feet long, where he was measuring things for God. And Ezekiel was watching uh, uh, things be measured. And what he was watching being measured was a future temple that was going to be built during the millennium. And this idea of measuring is God making boundaries, supernatural boundaries around certain items, either for judgment or for blessing. That's things that are measured by God are measured for judgment or blessing. Depends on the context. And here God is making a measurement of preservation and blessing. So this is a good measuring. Everything within these parameters shall be blessed and preserved to the the last detail by me in the future. And there was given to me this measuring rod, this staff. And someone said to him, get up, measure the temple of God, the temple of God. This is a literal temple. This is a future temple. And so he starts measuring this temple in the vision of this future temple that will exist. And it's going to exist on earth. And the altar, that's the brazen altar that existed outside the Holy of Holies in the holy place in the courtyard, the brazen altar where people gathered around, specifically the priests. Sacrifices were made, animals were killed, sacrifices were offered up to God. Death, blood was shed so that God might be appeased. And so what is being measured is the temple. So God is marking out the temple for preservation and for blessing. This future temple and the altar with it and sacrifice that would go with it on that altar. And not only the temple was measured... And the altar was measured, but those who worship in the temple were measured. And those that worship inside the temple area were not Gentiles, but primarily Jews, faithful Jews, obedient Jews, a remnant of believing Jews. So this is a prophecy of the future during the time of the tribulation that there's going to exist a temple. Did you know there is not a temple now, which means a temple has to be built before then. It's amazing truth. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse four says there will be a temple during the tribulation. Uh, Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 says that there will be a temple during the time of the tribulation when Antichrist reigns supreme. It will be in Jerusalem. There isn't one there now. We know where the holy site is, where the temple should be built. We know where Solomon built his first temple. We know where Zerubbabel built the second temple. We know where King Herod built the third temple. We know where Jesus is going to build the fifth millennium temple. It's all on the same site. So the tribulation temple must be built in Jerusalem on the holy place. It doesn't exist now. If you go to the Jerusalem, to the holy place right now is the Dome of the Rock, which is a one of the most sacred and holy Islamic sites in the world. This It's a shrine, and it's there right now. And so you've got war between Muslims and Jews and even Christians going on in Jerusalem, fighting and vying for that holy place. And there are a lot of Jews there in Jerusalem Pretty radical Jews, not necessarily believers in Jesus right now or the gospel, who are trying to build that temple and overthrow the Muslims that rule there so that they can build a temple. They don't even know they're going to fulfill prophecy because they don't believe in the New Testament. And God is going to sovereignly, amazingly, providentially, probably use people like that to fulfill his word to the T. And there will be, I guarantee it, because that's what scripture says, a temple that is literal on the earth in Jerusalem during the tribulation. As a matter of fact, Daniel 9 says the Antichrist is actually going to help the Jews build it and preserve it. For three and a half years, he's going to make a covenant with them. Yeah, you can have your temple. That's what Herod did. He was wicked and evil, but he'd make concessions to his advantage at times. The Antichrist is going to do the same thing. Yeah, sure. Hey, hey, let's sign a seven-year covenant. And they do. Let's make a treaty. I want a Nobel Peace Prize. 
And then three and a half years later, boom, the Antichrist is going to break that covenant with the Jews. And then he's just going to go on a rampage and try to slaughter as many as he, as he can the way Adolf Hitler did. And he's going to put Hitler to shame in his persecution of the Jewish people. So this is a real future tribulation building temple in Jerusalem. It's going to happen. And those who worship in it, verse 2, and leave out the court which is outside the temple. Well, what is that? The courtyard, the court of the Gentiles. Leave the Gentiles. Don't mark out and measure the Gentile population. They will not be protected. They will not be preserved. Well, why not? Why is this just emphasizing the Jewish people? Well, because of all the hundreds of Old Testament prophecies that God made to the Jewish people that have yet to be fulfilled, must be fulfilled. And the Jews are not going to be, I mean, the non-Jewish people are not going to be under this rainbow of preservation here at this time. Leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. And reason, for it has been given to the nations. Literally, it has been given to the Gentiles. In other words, during this time, in the future, in the tribulation, the majority of Gentiles are going to reject Christ, reject the gospel, reject everything that the prophets at that time will be saying. And they will be siding with the Antichrist, siding with the false prophet, and persecuting believers at that time, and persecuting believing Jews in an unprecedented way. And that's going to be the fulfillment of what Jesus called in Luke 21, the times of the Gentiles, which also Daniel referred to. There's this period where uh, rulers around the world who are Gentiles and don't know God are ruling the world. They wield all authority and power, and that's what's going on in the world today. We are still in the times of the Gentiles. There's no theocracy on earth. And there ain't no theocracy here in America. We are living in the times of the Gentiles. That's what Jesus said in Luke 21. It will be fulfilled, the times of the Gentiles, during the tribulation. When this rebellion, spearheaded by unbelieving Gentiles, is going to reach a climax in the tribulation. Daniel was the one also who commented about the time of the Gentiles. It would go on. And it started probably uh, when the Assyrians came in and sacked Israel and really began to undermine and demolish the theocracy that God had established. And ever since then, Gentile powers have reigned supreme in the world after the time of Solomon. So it was the Assyrians who reigned supreme and ruled over the world. And then the Medo-Persians and then the Greek Empire and then the Roman Empire and then all the remnants and rudiments of uh, the Roman Empire reenacted all throughout history. And so it's, it's pretty much secular, humanistic, atheistic, God-hating, rebellious, Gentile world powers that rule the world and will till Christ comes again, until this time. And that's what he's saying here. This is the fulfillment of the times of the Gentiles that Jesus spoke of in Luke 21. And it's going to reach a culmination. Well, what's the culmination? Well, there's even a time period, the middle of verse 2, for it has been given. Notice, God is in charge. God determined this. This is not by chance or mistake or, oh, God's messing up or he doesn't know what he's doing or he's in a panic. God is totally in control. Totally. And it has been granted. It has been given. That phrase is used through Revelation many, most of the time. God is the one that determined it. God gave. God determined. God planned it out. It has been given to the nations or the Gentiles who hate God. They will be put in power and they will tread or trample underfoot the holy city, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to be the hub of all world activity in the future. I would say that Jerusalem is almost the hub of all world activity today. I've been looking at the newspaper since 9-11, so it's been, uh, what, nine years? Just about every day in the newspaper, if it's not on the front page, there's something about Jerusalem and the Jews and how the world hates them every single day in the headlines. And that's been true you know, for years, decades actually. And it's going to be true in the future that Jerusalem is going to be the hub of all world activity and that all the Gentiles are going to turn their guns and their barrels on Jerusalem, the holy city, because God is doing something new. We already saw he's got 144,000 Jewish witnesses. That's new. 
That doesn't intimidate the unbelieving world. Can you imagine? Right now, 27 nations, 27 Muslim nations surrounding little Israel today, right now, who want to cast Israel into the Mediterranean Sea and totally wipe them out. And then all of a sudden, God just starts percolating some activity there in Jerusalem with 144,000 Jewish believers and witnesses. And then all of a sudden, we're going to see these two Jewish witnesses that have supernatural capabilities. And then uh, all of the Jews from all over the world coming and uh, retreating or coming back to the nation of Israel all at one time. It's going to be very threatening to the world powers at that time. And so for a period of 42 months at the end of verse 2, that is three and a half years. That is 1,260 days. For 42 months, the city of Jerusalem is going to be trampled underfoot by the Antichrist as the Antichrist is just trying to blot out, wipe out every last Jew and every last professor of Jesus Christ. And he's doing it with a vengeance. And we're going to see the detail of that in Revelation 12 and 13. But God, the main point is, is God is marking out. He's going to preserve the nation of Israel for something grand for the culmination of uh, the future uh, for world history. And that's why even today, the promise of Genesis 12 still stands. When God told Abraham, I'm going to make you a nation, that nation would be Israel. And he said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you. And all the earth shall be blessed through you. That promise still stands. It hasn't been reneged. In other words, if you are a creature of God on planet Earth, you better be end up on the side of the nation of Israel. Whether it's a political debate or a theological debate, if you want to be blessed, you better end up on the side of the Jewish people. Even though right now the entire nation isn't believing, there's plenty of Jews getting saved on an individual basis who are being joined to the church of Jesus Christ. But in the future, corporately, God is going to bring the entire nation together and fulfill all of His promises that have yet to be fulfilled. So that is God's Jewish remnant being measured for blessing and preservation so he can fulfill his plan in the future. Let's go on to point number two, and that's verses 3 through 14, and that is God's two witnesses empowered. God's two witnesses. These are real guys, okay? These aren't metaphors. Depending upon what commentator you're reading on Revelation or study Bible, you're going to get about 22 different views of who these two witnesses are. And most of them disagree or conflict one way or another. Uh, some people say, one common one is, well, one of the witnesses is the church and the other one is the nation of Israel. And all throughout history, God's people have been uh, the people of Israel and the people, no, these are not symbolic for entities. Uh, and on and on the interpretations go. Uh, these are actually two real people because they are likened and compared to two real people in the Old Testament in Zechariah. Two prophets of God that God raised up that he called lampstands to do a prophetic mission. So these are two real people. Two prophets of God. Uh, look at verse 3. About these two witnesses. I will grant authority to my two witnesses. What is a witness? Somebody that's going to witness or speak up on behalf of God. They're going to witness two things. They're going to witness the good news. So they're going to continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ even in the midst of wholesale rejection worldwide. They will continue because God is a God of grace and mercy. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So to the last day, hour, minute, second, Jesus Christ will continue to proclaim the gospel of saving grace to sinners. Come, all who are weary and heavy laden. That is God's heart. He is a Savior. And He's going to do that to the very end through these two witnesses. So that's part of their witness and message. It's twofold. The gospel of Jesus Christ is going to be proclaimed by these two men. And they're going to shout it from the top of the buildings at the top of their lungs. That is Matthew 24. Jesus said, this gospel shall be preached until the whole world hears it before the end. The second thing they're going to preach is warning and judgment. If you don't heed God's grace, if you don't accept 
the gospel, then I need to tell you in honesty and in love what's going to happen. It is the wrath of God is going to come on you. If you reject God's grace, that's what happens. Those are the two options, two alternatives. That's what the preachers are going to preach. God's grace, God's judgment. As Paul prayed this morning, where justice and mercy meet. It's a beautiful expression, and that's what these guys are all about. So these are two preachers. They are two witnesses. These are two men. And they are likened to Old Testament prophets in terms of their calling and their abilities. Uh, And they will prophesy or preach publicly. They will they will prophesy. It's the word for preach. They will preach. They will preach. They will. Can you imagine the technological advancements we're going to have when these guys are around? Scientifically speaking, and technology. I mean, look, we got video, we got all kinds of stuff. And if this is a hundred years from now, fifty years from now, the technological advancements are just going to continue to go and go. And that's why many people in the church, and they've been saying this for decades, that you know, preaching is old hat. It is obsolete. It is arcane. It's not effectual. Uh, we're a video. Uh, age and so preaching doesn't work anymore it's not effective so we need to stop preaching in churches and preaching the message we need to use video and uh theatrical activities and those kind of things because that will be more effective no god's way of communicating to people that they might be saved always and will always be preaching preaching of the that's why in the new testament it says the foolishness of preaching one of the reasons it's called foolishness is because most people reject it and they'll say that it is arcane it is ineffectual why aren't we watching videos 3d hi-fi surround sound i want to be entertained where's the popcorn but anyway preaching god's message has always been given through preachers the old testament says that enoch was a preacher of god noah was a preacher of god jesus was a preacher of god all the old testament prophets were preachers of god all the apostles are preachers of god a pastor is called to be a preacher of god in the future the two witnesses will be preachers of god It's the wisdom of preaching and the foolishness of preaching. That's how God is going to get his message out. That's why Romans 10 says, how shall they hear without a preacher? It's a living message. It must be preached. That's what these guys are going to do. And they're going to have a huge impact. It doesn't mean they won't use a microphone as they're preaching or a 3D high def screen while they're preaching to enhance their message. But it's going to this their message is going to take over the world because look at the reaction. Uh, They're going to be preaching. For three and a half years, they're going to be clothed in sackcloth. In other words, they're going to be set apart. They are going to be noticeable. They're not hiding. They're not camouflaging. They want to be noticed by the world. Sackcloth, uh, that is the garb of a prophet and of someone who is in mourning. And they have a message of judgment and they are mourning for people who don't heed this message. Powerful preachers. These two men, these are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And again, that's the historical context in the Old Testament. That is right out of Zechariah. God had two faithful men during the exile and that's what they were called and that's what these two men are called. That's why we know these are two real men who are going to be preachers. And you can read that in the book of Zechariah. Uh, verse 5, And if anyone desires to harm them, if anyone desires to harm why in the world would anybody want to hurt them? Man, they've got a good message. They're sent from God. Nobody wants to hurt them because we all, we all get along, don't we? Everybody loves everybody. Hold hands. Kumbaya. Right? The world's getting better. We're headed towards a utopia. Can't we all just get along? Well, that ain't going to happen. If anyone desires to harm them, he says it two, three times. These guys are not going to be liked. These guys are going to be hated. These guys are going to be despised. This is a fulfillment of John 7 when Jesus says, if you preach me faithfully, the world will hate you. I guarantee it. As they hated me first. That's why if you're a Christian, you're going out in the world being faithful and your goal is to have everybody like you all the time, you're going to be miserable. 
Because if you're being faithful to Christ, inevitable, you're going to have people hating you, not because of who you are, but because of the message of Christ. And that's why they're going to be despised and hated. They're going to be hated on a worldwide scale because the whole world is going to hear their message. So people are going to hate him, hate him to the degree that not just to be uh, kick him out of the synagogue or not be nice or isolate them. People are going to want to kill him. That's the end of verse five. People are going to want to murder these guys. God will supernaturally protect them for a time. Uh, he's going to give them some ammo that they can wield when they need to. Uh, fire will proceed out of their mouth and devour their enemies. Whoa, man, you know, I bet you John the Apostle is licking his chops because remember him and his brother? They wanted to call fire out of the sky and burn up all the Samaritans that rejected Jesus Christ in the Gospels. And Jesus said, man, you've got an attitude of pride and judgment. You need to be an apostle of grace. And here John is reading this prophecy. Hey, I wanted to do that. Me and James wanted to do this. It's not fair. So John maybe is thinking, hey, maybe the two witnesses, they don't have names. Maybe this is me and James. We get to do this. Who knows what John was thinking? But it sounds cool. Fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone would desire to harm them in this manner, that those people must be killed. And of all the commentaries, everybody's got a different view about who these guys are going to be. For those who believe these are real people, some say Moses and Elijah, blah, 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 blah. Fact of the matter is it doesn't say who their names are. So I'm praying it's going to be me. This sounds fun. Anyway, probably not going to be me. Verse 6, uh, the two witnesses also have the power to shut up the sky. That was like Elijah, right? Prayed and it didn't rain for three plus years. In order that rain may not fall as a way of judgment on certain entire lands. Not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood like Moses did. So some people think this is Moses and Elijah coming back. Not reincarnated, but coming back in resurrection bodies. Which I don't believe. And to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire, like Moses did. And when they have finished their testimony or their preaching after three and a half years, the beast, the Antichrist that comes up out of the abyss will make war against them. And finally, the Antichrist will succeed in overcoming the two witnesses after three and a half years. And he will succeed in killing them. And he's going to kill them in Jerusalem. He's going to kill them in Israel. They will be slaughtered somehow. Verse eight. They will be murdered and the dead bodies of these two prophets of God. When a body is dead in the Jewish community, it, it becomes unclean and it needs to be taken care of immediately and buried away in the dirt because it is unclean. Otherwise, the body is desecrated and makes other people unclean. So whoever these enemies are, they know that. They want to desecrate these bodies. Verse 8, they want to humiliate them and their community. Uh, verse 8 says, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city what, where also their Lord was crucified. Can you imagine that? They're going to be murdered and then they're going to be mocked and humiliated and their bodies are going to be left to lay in the streets of Jerusalem publicly so the whole world can see. They'll probably use television, uh, CNN and whatever else to show it to the world. And they do that today on CNN when these radical Muslims go in and murder people. You can see it on video. They publicize it. They celebrate. They jump up and down. They whistle. They exchange gifts because they think they're doing this for their false God. That's what's going to happen in the future. To these guys. It's warped. It is perverted. Satanic. They're going to be out laying in the streets of Jerusalem publicly and their bodies won't be buried. Verse 9, and those from the peoples and tribes and tongues. And see, these are Gentiles. These are unbelieving Gentiles. This is an international coalition of people who hate God and Jewish people. And it's growing right now as we speak. They will look at the dead bodies of these two prophets of God and they're going to look at them for three and a half days. And just leave them there. 
three and a half days and they will not permit their bodies to be laid in a tomb. They're not going to bury them. It's purposeful. Verse 10, and those who dwell on the earth. See, this is earth dwellers, God haters, earth dwellers. Revelation 3.10, earth dwellers. They're, they're going to rejoice. They're not mourning over the death. They're not grossed out. They are rejoicing over the bloody affair. And they're going to make merry. They're going to celebrate. And they will send gifts to one another like it's Christmas because these two prophets, why? Tormented them, made them feel guilty with truth. That's what happened. People get angry when they get convicted by truth. That's sinful human nature. These two prophets tormented those people uh, who are earth dwellers. Verse 11, and after the three and a half days, the breath of God Almighty, He is the giver of life. He's going to do a miracle. He is the God of resurrection, isn't He? The God of resurrection. The breath of life came from God. It came into the two dead. Look, notice they've been dead for three and a half days. Who knows what's going to happen to their bodies? Being mutilated and mangled and attacked by bugs and animals. It's amazing that God could do this. He is the giver of life. Uh, the breath of life came into them. They were resurrected. They came to life and they stood up. And notice the, ch- the tense changes as though it's happening right now. It's guaranteed. And they stood on their feet in Jerusalem. They are alive. They're resurrected. Can you imagine what their enemies would think? First of all, the reaction was probably becoming almost scared to the point of death and speechlessness. Whoa! I thought we killed these guys. We had the evidence. I've got the blood on my hands. Look at them. They're going to come back to life. And they stood on their feet in Jerusalem and great fear fell upon those who were beholding them. Verse 12, and they heard a voice from heaven saying, come up here. That is God Almighty calling them. Okay, it's time to come home, boys. You've been faithful. You've been faithful to death. And the two witnesses went up. Boom, that's a resurrection. That's a rapture. So they're going to go up to heaven. They went up into heaven in the cloud and their enemies, get this, their enemies watched it happen. It might even be videotaped. No way to explain it away. No spin zone. They're eyewitnesses. And God's even going to use that as a warning to try to soften and woo people to Himself to the last minute. In verse 13, and, the, and in that hour, there was a great earthquake. So right when that we get raptured up to heaven, all of a sudden, okay, if that's not warning and sign enough from God, God's going to make it universal and He makes this massive earthquake happen instantaneously at that very hour. In that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. The tenth of the city of Jerusalem is going to fall and collapse. It's amazing. Uh, 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Some people are going to be converted. That's the good news. Some people, they just, they're going to be broken. Come to Christ as a result. God works all things together for good. Verse 14, the second woe is past. This is the second of the last third woes. Behold, the third woe, the last woe, the seventh trumpet, the seven bowls, the final plagues is about to come. And that's point number three, 15 through 19. We'll close with that. And that's God's final victory is assured. So we've gone through the seven seals, which was the beginning of the tribulation, the first three and a half years. Inside the seventh seal were seven trumpets. And that's around the mid point of the tribulation. And then now the seventh trumpet is going to be blown. And the seventh trumpet is the last three and a half years of the tribulation called the great tribulation. And there are other synonyms and phrases used to describe the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet is equal to and synonymous with the seven bold judgments that happen in Revelation 16. Uh, the, the seventh trumpet is also called the last plagues. It's also called that. The seventh trumpet is also called the great tribulation. So, uh, And the seventh trumpet is also called the third woe, the third and final woe. So when you put all the scriptures and pieces together, that's what it is. And so now we are going to be ushered into the last three and a half years real quickly uh, of how all this is going to culminate. So 
Let's look at God's final victory assured in all of this. And that's starting at verse 15. And then finally, the seventh angel. There's been a commercial break for almost two chapters, this interlude between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. Now the interlude is over. God has, uh, John has been commissioned. He's been encouraged. He's been uh, preserved. He's been called by God and reassured of his call. And he is firm and confident in that calling. His people, Israel, are going to be uh, saved and preserved by God. And so now he's ready to move forward. And so now... Uh, the rest of the vision is given, and that seventh angel blows his trumpet. And so from chapter 11, verse 15, all the way to Revelation 18 is the content of the seventh trumpet. And inside the seventh trumpet are seven bowls of God's wrath. It's like this telescope. It's like this onion that keeps getting unpeeled of more and more content and specific detail that's revealed every step along the way. But actually, if you read the details of 15 to 19 in chapter 11 and it says the trumpet trumpet of judgment you would think you know it's going to start with a whole bunch of bad news and actually it's all good news because it's a prophecy it's actually what's kind of unique verses 15 to 19 in revelation 11 are actually what's going to happen as a result of the seventh trumpet it's not the content of the seventh trumpet but it's how it's all going to end so he's starting off with the good news this is called a proleptic vision god is Speaking of the end as though it's happening right now. It's future. It is prophetic. It's a divine way of revealing guaranteed truth. So let's look at, look at this, how, how it's all going to end. This is at the end of the seven years. This is what's going to happen as a result of the seventh trumpet being ushered in by God. The seventh angel sounded and there arose loud voices in heaven. That is the angelic choir and all the believers up in heaven and they were rejoicing because at the end of the seven years, Jesus wins. And if you're a believer, you win too. You're on the winning team. Even if you sat on the bench, you are on the winning team. Isn't that cool? You get a ring, just like everybody else. That is the good news. So everybody in heaven is rejoicing and celebrating. What are they celebrating at the end of the seven years? They're celebrating that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He's going to reign forever and ever for 1,000 years on earth and then for all eternity in a new heaven and new earth. And all the saints and believers will reign with Him in glory. Hallelujah. That is the good news. Verse 16, And the 24 elders... These are angelic angels, probably, we saw earlier, who sit on their thrones closely around the glory of God in heaven. They're on the end. They sit on their thrones before God. They fell on their faces again. These guys are falling over all over the place all the time. Falling down before God, falling down. And that's what worship is. It's falling down, falling down before a holy God, worshiping him. And this is what they're doing. They're saying they are giving thanks to Lord God Almighty, who art, who was, because thou hast taken thy great power and has begun to rain we've been looking for so the angels are up there and they've been watching this story called earth history for six thousand years that's a long story and the angels have been watching for six thousand years and finally we get to the last chapter and they're celebrating oh this is how it ends amen so they go into utter rejoicing at the way that world history ends with god victorious along with his people and even the angels are celebrating that great victory verse 18 here's the response of the unbelievers at the end of the tribulation they are not happy the nations, the Gentiles, the unbelievers, the earth dwellers, they're enraged by all this. They are mad. They're angry. They're angry at God. They're angry at Israel. They're angry at believers. They hate Jesus Christ. That's how they respond. They should be rejoicing at the creator of the universe. They're not. They're enraged. Unbelieving Gentiles at the end of the tribulation are enraged, at least those that are still alive and have not repented of their sin. God's wrath came. God's wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged. 
and the time to give the reward and, and the time to give the reward to thy bondservants and prophets and to the saints and to those who fear thy name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. What a great blessing and promise. If you know Jesus Christ, there's a day where you're going to go and get to stand on the Olympic stand in heaven and be rewarded by Jesus Christ literally with rewards for faithful service during your Christian life. That is awesome. Standing up there and being recognized publicly by name by the Lord of the universe, Jesus Christ. Not to be condemned for your sin because he already died for you. But to be rewarded with your rewards for faithful service. Whether it's specific things or responsibility that Jesus gives you during the millennium and in eternity to come. Awesome. And verse 19. And the temple of God which is in heaven was opened. That's the full revelation of God, the full glory of God. Finally, we're going to get to see it because right now we don't see the revelation of God. We don't see the glory of God. I have never seen Jesus. And Peter says, you're not going to see Jesus in this life because he ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of the father and he's staying there till he returns again someday. And if you're not an apostle, he ain't coming to you. He's in your heart by faith. But here in the future, that glory is unveiled. Finally, we get to see God face to face in unveiled glory amazing and you can do it because you have a resurrection body that has no sin you're worthy you will be worthy to enter the holy of holies you are a priest you are a, a saint you are a holy one you are perfect and you can enter immediately into the presence of a holy god as a result and so that's why it says the temple of god which is in heaven was unveiled it will be opened the ark of his covenant that you couldn't look into previously that you would die automatically if you did or like Uzzah, unfortunately if you touched you'd die on the spot now that ark is going to be open to all the saints. What a privilege. The ark of his covenant appeared in his temple and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. And you're going to be able to behold it as a believer to rejoice in the glory of almighty God and in Jesus Christ. That is the good news. That's how it all ends. And actually it doesn't end there. That's actually just the beginning. Isn't that great? That is the beginning of the millennium and all eternity with God. And so with that, God is trying to encourage us right now in this life where it is hard, where we walk with feet of clay, temptations all around us and all of our weaknesses and all of our frailties and all our doubts and emotion, right? Where we're so myopic and short-sighted. This is the big picture. This is the way it really ends. Jesus Christ in victory and all the believers with him. Let's go ahead and thank God for that great reality. Father, we do thank you for your goodness in so many ways. And we have had the great privilege of celebrating that together as a local church, as the body of Christ, through fellowship and encouragement with the saints, through song, through prayer, through scripture. And God, just emblazon this on our hearts in an indelible manner uh, for today, for the rest of this week. God, that we would live uh, with an eternal perspective. We would live in light of the future. We'd remember that Jesus Christ is victor reigns on high, lives in our heart. And that's why we can face tomorrow, let alone today, by faith. God, thank you for the good news. We know how the world is going to end and it ends in our favor. Thank you for your goodness and mercy. God, may this be the content that propels a courageous, bold, and specific message during the Christmas holidays wherever we go as your ambassadors, with everyone we come across, even the difficult ones like lost family members or Maybe neighbors that don't know you or work colleagues, God. Give us grace, uh, tact, understanding, a good listening in your ear, and at the same time, 
be a vessel to pour out the good news on behalf of Jesus Christ. We commit it to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.